0: Hello, and welcome. This is 21. Episode 1.2, Saving the Temples. Last week, we looked at the first wonder on our list, the temple complex of Abu Simbel. Carved out of a cliff face in southern Egypt, Pharaoh Ramses II ordered this temple built to portray himself and his favorite wife and queen, Nefertari, both as gods and the chosen rulers of the Egyptian people. Everything from the colossal statues at the entrance to both temples to the carvings and engravings on the walls tell tales of Ramses and Nefertari communing with the gods, performing heroic duties, and interacting with the gods of Egypt. But it is the inner worship room of the great temple which is the most impressive part of the entire Abu Simbel complex. Now, Abu Simbel could have stood as a proud symbol of Egypt's strong and dominating pharaohs for thousands of years, much like the great pyramids already did. However, sadly for Ramses II, this would not be the case. While today it is a monument of ancient history and rightfully deserves its place on our list, Abu Simbel rather quickly fell from one of Egypt's greatest creations and into the obscurity of history. Not all of this was Ramses II's fault either. It is easy to blame him for the decline of Abu Simbel due to his decision to build it so close to his southern border. And while this was a bold decision there was no way that he could have known or predicted that he would have been the last great pharaoh of Egypt. Nor could he have known that nature would have had a hand in its demise as well. Less than 40 years after the completion of Abu Simbel, an earthquake struck near the temple complex. The great temple of Abu Simbel suffered the most damage from this quake. One of the massive statues guarding the entrance lost its top half, and a few of the other statues suffered some minor damage. This was perhaps an omen of the future of Abu Simbel. One in which the natural elements would conquer this amazing wonder, and keep it hidden for hundreds if not thousands of years. But the natural elements would come later. It was the collapse of the third dynasty of Egyptian pharaohs which caused the more immediate problems for Abu Simbel. Now, when Abu Simbel was completed, Egypt was the main power in Mesopotamia and North Africa. Ramses II had reasserted this Egyptian dominance in the Mesopotamian world. The new kingdom of Egypt was at the height of its power during his reign. However, once he died, it would not be long before Egypt would be falling apart. Crumbling from interior and exterior pressures, the New Kingdom could only have survived if someone like Ramses II succeeded Ramses II to the Egyptian throne. But sadly, there was no one around like him once he died. The collapse of the New Kingdom of Egypt happened for several reasons. The first was that the succession of Ramses II was one of the most difficult in Egyptian history. After one of the longest and most successful reigns in the ancient world, who would follow this iconic pharaoh would be a question that would lead to the downfall of the new kingdom of Egypt. The first problem stemmed from the fact that Ramses II's reign was so long. Despite Ramses II having fathered over a hundred children during his reign, he outlived most of them. Life expectancy in the ancient world was not nearly as long as it is today. So, the traditional method of the first or the second born son succeeding their father to the throne was out of the question. This added all kinds of drama to the succession crisis. And among the sons still alive at his death, none of them were chosen to succeed their father. Maybe this was because there were too many of them, or none of them stood out to the other royalty. Or maybe no one wanted to start a civil war by choosing one son, and then have someone else in the royal court nominate somebody else. Either way, their solution did not work out in the long run. Instead of a son being chosen, Ramses II's younger brother, Minerpta, was chosen to succeed the great pharaoh. Now, we will never know what would have happened had Ramses II and his royal court chosen one of his sons to succeed him instead of his brother. Would Egypt have remained a world power for longer than it had? I personally don't believe that would be the case, and the evidence supports that, due to the nature of the Egyptian empire at the time. But that's one of those what-if questions that we will never get an answer to. Now, we do not have time to go through the rest of the Egyptian history up until the fall of Cleopatra. That would be a whole podcast in and of itself. So instead, I will do a very brief summary of the years that are important for our understanding and appreciation of Abu Simbel. Not even a hundred years after the death of Ramses II, both the external and internal pressures in Egypt grew at an alarming rate. Rivalries and jealousies began to tear the Egyptian court apart. The army, which was the most feared army in Mesopotamia under Ramses II, began deteriorating quickly. Egypt continued to be crippled by weak pharaohs and internal divides, and Egypt's neighbors saw an opportunity to take advantage. The Nubians, also known as the Kushites, began to push up from the south and invaded. They came up from the foothills of modern-day Sudan and conquered all of the territory in southern Egypt up to the great city of Elephantine. I have maps up on the website for reference. But the Nubians didn't stop there. In one of the great ironies of history, Nubia actually conquered Egypt and placed its own rulers on the Pharaoh's throne. Now because the Nubians had been so integrated into Egyptian culture, we don't really say that Egyptian civilization ended here with the Nubian conquest. The Nubians were in fact more like a colony of Egypt. The only thing that really changed in Egyptian society was the lines and the dynasties from which the rulers came from. But this situation didn't last very long. Less than a hundred years later, the Neo-Assyrian Empire came down from the Mediterranean and conquered the Lower Nile. About this time, Egypt also threw off their Nubian rulers and formed their own smaller kingdom in between their two enemies. Lower Egypt would then be conquered by both the Neo-Babylonians and the Persians. Egypt would remain squished in the middle until Alexander the Great came down from Macedonia and conquered the Persian Empire. But Alexander's empire was short-lived. When he died in 323 BC, Egypt was once again able to make itself a whole independent and powerful nation. One of Alexander's generals, Ptolemy, took control of the whole Egyptian area and established himself and his line as the new dynasties of Egypt. Egypt would remain under the Hellenistic rule of the Ptolemies until Cleopatra and Mark Antony were defeated by Octavian in 30 BC. This added Egypt to the Roman Empire permanently and removed the pharaohs from power. However, neither Ptolemic Egypt or Roman Egypt ventured far enough south to reclaim Abu Simbel. Now this was an incredibly brief overview and a lot of information. But it was important to cover this with regards to our first wonder because it lays the groundwork for why abu simbel disappeared from history with the nubians in control of southern egypt for a long period of time abu simbel disappears from the historical record we just don't have many records from the nubians themselves and the subsequent smaller kingdoms which controlled the area around abu simbel fortunately for us And contrary to the majority of the ancient world, the Nubians left Abu Simbel alone. This was highly unusual in the ancient world as we will see later on our show. When one empire would conquer another, they would normally destroy any and all sacred buildings. But the Nubians left Abu Simbel alone. Maybe this was because they worshipped a lot of the same gods as the Egyptians. And while they probably would not worship Ramses II as a deity, destroying a temple dedicated to the sun god Ra might have been too much for the Nubians to handle. They had also been highly integrated into Egyptian society, and the Nubian culture had almost been fused with traditional Egyptian. So when the Nubians took over territories from Egypt, they left the majority of the Egyptian monuments alone. Whatever their reasons were, I'm glad they chose to leave it. Perhaps they continued to worship there, perhaps they left it as a monument of their conquests. Either way, Abu Simbel would eventually begin to be overtaken by the desert. Again, we don't know why or when Abu Simbel ceased to be relevant. It might have been abandoned after the Nubians conquered the southern Egyptian territories, or it could have been continued to be used for many years. Either way, the Sahara Desert would eventually claim these two magnificent temples. The Abu Simbel Temple Complex would remain hidden in the sand for hundreds of years. Abu Simbel would not reappear until the year 1799, about 1,500 years after it disappeared. At this point, the focus of the world was no longer on Mesopotamia, but Europe. Egypt, although a shadow of her former glory, remained an important piece on the world stage. The closeness that Egypt shared with both the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea was mighty tempting for the European powers. They saw Egypt as a shortcut around the African continent to get to the riches of Asia. And while 1799 was a dark year of war in Egypt, it did lead to the discovery that would kickstart the archaeological and scientific interest in Egypt. And it begins with one of the most iconic men ever to live, Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon and his army were on their Egyptian campaign to take it from Britain in 1799 when one of Napoleon's soldiers made an incredible discovery. It is perhaps the single greatest archaeological find in history, the Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone is a stone tablet with three different writings on it, Egyptian hieroglyphics, Egyptian Demotic which was another Egyptian dialect, but most importantly, Greek. The discovery of the Rosetta Stone opened up the ancient world to us by allowing us to understand Egyptian writings, something which seemed like a distant dream up until that moment. Suddenly, the entire Egyptian world was unlocked. The discovery of the Rosetta Stone in 1799 launched a flurry of exploratory trips to Egypt. One trip in particular brought back Abu Simbel onto the world stage. Fourteen years after the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, in 1813, Swiss researcher Johann Ludwig Burckhardt was exploring southern Egypt when he was led to an astonishing discovery. A local boy led him to a giant stone head sticking up from the sand. Little did Burckhardt know at the time, that this was just the tip of the iceberg. Unable to unearth it there in that moment, Burkhard returned to Europe to share his discovery. One man he shared this discovery with was a fellow explorer and a friend, Giovanni Belzoni. Upon hearing of the head in the sand, Belzoni took it upon himself to get together a team and unearth whatever the head was attached to. Four years later in 1817, Belzoni succeeded in getting a team together and headed to Egypt. He was led to the site of the Big Head by the same local boy who led his friend Burckhardt to the site in the first place. Now legend has it that the boy who led these men to this site was named Abu Simbel. And as such the European explorers named the site after him. But this is just a rumor. We may never know how or where the temple complex got the name Abu Simbel. Either way, Belzoni and his team uncovered the Abu Simbel temple complex and brought it back from the desert. During this process, Belzoni and his team excavated, I use that term loosely, it was more like looted, the temples and brought back some of its treasures to Europe. This style of archaeology was common in that day and is still used in some parts today, where excavation and looting go hand in hand. I personally think this is awful, because the artifacts inside are a part of the building, and no ancient site is complete without its artifacts there. But that's just my opinion. Anyways, I digress. Abu Simbel, now back in the sunlight and out of the sands, became the focal point of Egyptology. People came from all over the world to awe and admire it. Despite the fact that Abu Simbel had been buried in the sands for who knows how many years, the carvings and engravings of the temple complex remained vibrant and easy to see. Most of the color had been removed, but the sands did nothing to take away the intricacy of the carvings. Now if it had taken hundreds of years for the winds to blow sand into the temples, I would imagine that it would have eroded the engravings further than they had been. As such, I'm inclined to believe that there was potentially a sandstorm or something like that that kicked up a bunch of sand and deposited it into the temples at one time. Now this is just a hypothesis, and I could be very wrong. But based upon the level of erosion and damage to the temple, To me at least, it seems like this was a rather sudden event rather than a gradual one. Abu Simbel would stand tall and proud for about 150 years before once again Abu Simbel came under threat. But this time, it was of the man-made variety. In the 1960s, the Egyptian government decided to construct the Aswan High Dam on the Nile River. This dam was going to be built a little further downstream from where Abu Simbel sat. As a result, the rising level of water from the construction of the dam would have completely submerged Abu Simbel underwater. Aware of this, the Egyptian government took on a monumental project. They decided that instead of leaving it and letting it get submerged, they decided to relocate Abu Simbel. The fact that someone suggested this idea and it wasn't dismissed offhand honestly baffles me. But I'm so thankful they considered it. Before the construction of the dam, the Egyptians began taking Abu Simbel apart, piece by piece. They cut the massive chunks of stone in such a way that they would easily fit back together, and it would not be obvious that the stone had been cut. The goal was that when Abu Simbel was moved to its new location, high above the Nile River to avoid the flooding of the Aswan Dam, it would look like it was built there in the first place. They not only succeeded, but the level of success the Egyptians achieved is worthy of their ancient ancestors. Those men would have been proud of the men who were a part of the Abu Simbel relocation project. It took about four years to complete, From 1964 to 1968, a team from UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, were in charge of this project. It was expensive. At the time, it cost more than 40 million U.S. dollars to move the wonder. The movers even created mounds of compacted rubble and dirt, Overlaying concrete domes to try to replicate the feeling of Abu Simbel being inside a mountain. This incredible attention to detail has created a truly unique wonder. It is one of the few, if not the only wonder on this list, that people can go inside today and get up close and personal with the history. In fact, it is the second most visited site in Egypt. After the Great Pyramids, of course. Now when the UNESCO moved Abu Simbel, they didn't just move the temples. They also moved the courtyards, the smaller monuments, and the stelae, and put them in their corresponding places in front of the two temples. And here at Abu Simbel, we find something very interesting. Amongst the monuments surrounding the temple we find one which has the name of the architect who built Abu Simbel. His name was Asha Hebshed. He apparently was the foreman who organized the work crews who constructed Abu Simbel. This same monument states why Ramses II ordered Abu Simbel built. It is written there that Ramses built these temples as a testament to his enduring glory and how he trusted his perhaps most precious work to Asha Hebshed. Asha Hebshed must have been really trusted by the pharaoh, but he also had to have been incredibly nervous. This was a project where there could be no slip-ups. If one happened to have been made, he would not only lose his job, but more likely than not his head. Abu Simbel still stands today, as magnificently and proudly as it did the day of its completion. It might not look as colorful, and it's got a few rough spots, but it still stands majestically as a symbol of the power of the ancient Egyptians. And it is one of the few wonders anywhere in the world that you can get up close and personal with. Its detail is astounding. I hope to view this wonder in person someday. What makes this wonder so unique is that it is such a personal and intimate wonder. But Abu Simbel was constructed for a living man, a god among commoners. That is a tall order to live up to. But Abu Simbel not only lives up to it, but exceeds that every day. And fully deserves its spot as a wonder of the ancient world. Next week, as promised, we're going to take a little side trail and take a look at what composed the majority of the reliefs in the Great Temple, the Battle of Kadesh. The Battle of Kadesh was one of the most important battles in history. Not because it decided any great conflict or began or ended any great empire, but what happened in it was a first in history. But we will discuss all of that next week. And it is mostly because of the Battle of Kadesh that we even have the first wonder on our list, Abu Simbel.